The sermon text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, stone water jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, my heart brims with joy in Christ and what there is manifest of him in this text. He is very glorious. And I only fear that I may fall short of making plain what is here. So I ask for your help. This is a supernatural thing we're about here, preaching the word of God in such a way that verse 11 happens and the manifestation of the glory of the very Son of God 2,000 years after he lived would stand forth from these pages in such a compelling way that not only those disciples but we would believe that is supernatural. And therefore we pray, come. And my heart brims to be at Bethlehem. Just leaned over to my wife after this season of worship here at the downtown campus. And I'm assuming it's the same north and the same south. And said, we are privileged to be at Bethlehem. So that's the way I have felt, Lord, these 28 years. And feel it more now than ever. So thank you. I would be remiss not from time to time to say out loud in the presence of all your people, I can't believe they pay me to be here. So come, receive my joy as an evidence of your worth and the worth of your church and come and open the eyes of those who don't see it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may recall a couple of weeks ago I 
said that what guides me and what I highlight as I read these texts through the Gospel of John is especially verse 14 of chapter 1. Let's rehearse that so you can see why this is, because it will be reaffirmed in the text that was just read. Verse 14 of chapter 1, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So clearly John is intending to record the life of Jesus in order that that might happen again. We have seen his glory. So I'm going to tell this story again in the hope that 2,000 years from now, if he tarries, that would happen again. And then, remember, I said that verse 16 draws out why that's so precious to us. Because verse 16 says, And from this fullness, the fullness of glory, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So when you see it, When God, the Holy Spirit, opens the eyes of your heart in reading the gospel or listening to the preaching of the gospel to see the glory of Christ, that's like a laser. That sight line to the glory is like a laser along which grace streams into your life. The grace of faith, the grace of love, the grace of peace, the grace of life everlasting streams into your life along the laser of sight. It doesn't come any other way. If you don't see Christ as glorious, grace doesn't come into your life. It comes along the spiritual sight line of glory. So you you should just be praying right now. God, open the eyes of my heart. This is a quote from Ephesians 1. Open the eyes of my heart that I might know you. So those are my guidelines. I am reading this gospel with you, looking through that lens, where's your glory being manifest? I'm going to draw that out wherever I see that. So now, right there, look at verse 11 in our text, and you will see why I feel so confirmed we're on the right track here. We're not, oh, we took a bad turn at verse 14. Look at verse 11. This, referring back to the wedding and the turning of the water into wine, this is the first of the signs of Jesus, which he did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And then they add, he adds, his disciples believed on him. But there's the dynamic. Glory is revealed, faith is born. And then it works like a spiral So that Jesus said to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see glory? Glory, believe, glory, believe, on up forever. This is glorious, what he shows us of Christ here. Absolutely amazing. So what do you see? When you read the story of the wedding at Cana and the turning of the water into wine. And I'm going to tell you three manifestations of the glory of Christ that I see and I know there are more. And you may be frustrated that I didn't say the one you see. Like how many gallons there were in those jars. I'm not going to say a word about that. That's a lot of wine. 
Here are the ones I'm going to talk about. Number one, the glory of an obedient son. Number two, the glory of an ultimate purifier. Number three, the glory of an all-providing bridegroom. Okay, there's where I'm going. Those are the three glories that I see here, and I would like to show you so that you see it as well. Number one, the glory of an obedient son. Now, what I have in mind here is that Jesus exalts his sonship to the heavenly father above his sonship to his mother. I am talking, when I say the glory of an obedient son, I am talking about a divine son of God whose obedience to his father shines more brightly because of the way he relates to his mother, which is surprising. So that's where we're going first. Jesus is going to manifest here a radical allegiance to his father's will above his mother's and every other human attachment, brother, sister, whatever. So let's read the first four verses and you watch for this. Verse 1, chapter 2. On the third day was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that's a surprising response from the son of God, seems to me to his mother. I think Jesus knew it would be surprising. I think John, when he recorded it, knew it would be surprising. There is no hidden cultural thing behind this to say, oh, it was the culture, it was the culture. That's what you did. You called your mother woman. No. I did this little study to see whether it's okay to call your mother mother. Well, you can find it. I'll give you verses. Okay, like, if you, you want one, 1 Kings 2.20. Mother, he could have said, mother, what does this have to do with me? With you, woman, why is he doing that? This is surprising. Things that are surprising have meaning for most authors. This is brusque, gruff, probably not disrespectful. No, surely not disrespectful. In him was no sin. However, brusque, blunt, woman. One commentator says the best we might do today would be ma'am. If that helps you, okay. If you're from the South, it wouldn't help at all. That's just a child calls his mom ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Don't think that's what's going on here. Woman, what does this have to do with me? That phrase, what does this have to do with me, is um, translated 
differently all over the Bible. He's a bunch of times in the Old Testament, five other times in the New Testament, and guess on whose lips it occurs every time? Demons. The only other place this phrase is used is when demons say it to Jesus. He's butting in on their territory, for example, in Matthew 8, 29, and they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Same phrase exactly. What have you have to do with us? So the gist of it seems to be, I don't want you pressing in here. That's what a demon would mean. I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming at me like this. This is not your affair. Now, I'm not saying Jesus used that tone of voice. The demons did. But that's what he said. Woman, this isn't your place to be calling out my power right now. He didn't approve what she said. He's disapproving her moving in like this. He's disapproving. Now, what makes this significant, besides the surprising words, is that he goes right ahead and solves the problem. Exactly to her satisfaction, I presume. And you want to say, Jesus... If you're going to do it anyway, why did you stiff arm her like that? <laughs> Just say, Mother, I'll take care of it in a moment. Just say that. But you did. He took care of it. That's what makes this so surprising. He's going to do what she wants him to do. And in the meantime, woman, what? are you doing? Why are you intruding? Why are you coming at me like this? My hour has not yet come. He's pushing her back. Why? I think it's because Jesus felt a huge burden throughout his ministry to make clear not only to his mother and his brothers and his sisters all of which are referred to later, and to the rest of us, that because of who he was, physical relationships on the earth don't control him and don't oblige him. Physical relationships don't get an inside track with Jesus. You can't pull rank as a mom, a brother, a sister, or a sidekick. There's another way into favor with Jesus than pulling mother authority, brother authority, sister authority, or sidekick authority. There's no special advantage in being his mother or his brother or his sister to guide him or any special advantage in receiving salvation from him. And the reason is that he was absolutely bound to his father's will, not his mother's. And I mean his heavenly father. Let me read you a few pa passages. This is John eight twenty eight. I do nothing on my own authority. I speak just as the Father has taught me. John 5, 17. My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son likewise does. 
In other words, I am keying totally vertically off what my next step should be. And not off of you, Mom. Jesus had to work against the assumption that his physical family had an inside track, which everybody assumed. And you know the text I'm thinking about if you're a gospel reader, don't you? I'll read you some of them. Remember the time a woman, empathizing with what a wonder it must have been to be his mom, cried out, this is Luke 11, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's exactly the same stiff arming. That's exactly the same spirit. You are elevating my mother as though there's some special spiritual inside track here. There isn't. Mark chapter 3, he was speaking in a house. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. This is a burden Jesus carried his whole ministry. I must correct the assumption that my mother and my brothers and my sisters or any other kind of physical attachment to me carries any weight with me spiritually at all. I am guided by my Father in what I do. It's a remarkable thing what he said and what he did. It's followers, not family, who have a saving relationship with him. John 2, 4. They have no wine, son. Woman, what does that have to do with me? Your relationship with me as mother has no special weight here. You are a woman. Woman like every other woman. And if you come to me, you will come to me by faith and not by family. Now, pause. This is good news tonight, today. Because it means that your parents may be the most ungodly people you know. And that will be no hindrance in your coming into the favor of Jesus. This is big. We, f- we fear family contamination. Was I even born to that man? Have they kept this secret from me all my life? I don't look like him. And it doesn't matter when it comes to Jesus. He's blessing us 
He's wooing you out of the most horrible lineage that you're so embarrassed by. He's wooing you, saying, I'm not even going to let my mom have a special place here. One thing matters to me. Do you trust me? Do you come to me? Do you love me? It doesn't matter. This is good news. Receive it for what it is. Number two, that's the glory of the obedient son, and it is glorious indeed. Number two, the glory of an ultimate purifier. The glory of an ultimate purifier. And here what I mean is this. There's a reason why Jesus chooses water jars that were appointed for purification, not drinking, to put the wine in. These were not drinking vessels. They were bathing vessels. It didn't have to be mentioned. Six stone jars appointed for purification, not drinking. These are big bathing vessels for ritual purity. He didn't have to put the wine there. The point I'm going to argue is that he wanted to make his own death, the ultimate final act of purification, replacing all Jewish rituals of purification. Now you may say, whoa, where in the world do you see that? Well, I'll give you three pointers and see if you see it. Number one, he said in verse four, my hour has not yet come. He's going to do it anyway. Woman, don't ask me to do this. My hour has not yet come. What, what is the hour he's talking about? All commentators agree on this. This is not controversial. It's the hour of his death. I'll just read you the key verses. So, John 7.30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 8, verse 20. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. This is Garden of Gethsemane. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. And one more. John 12, 23 to 24. Here's the connection with death. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's the hour. This is clear. It's clear to the reader of this gospel on the second time through. You must read the gospel two, three, four, five hundred times to see what this gospel writer wants you to see. First time through, no way will you ever see it. Because later, it's like a mystery novel. That's pointer number one. The hour of his death, he says, is not here. Then, he goes ahead and instead of dying, fills cleansing jars with wine. 
as though I won't die, but I'll give you a parable of it. That's what I think is going on. And remember, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies from all sin. The blood of Jesus purifies from all sin. Here's the second pointer. Even though he rebuffs his mother's request by saying, My hour has not yet come, he goes right ahead and does the miracle. So it seems to me, lots and lots of others, that what Jesus is doing here is saying no to the climactic hour of his death and then yes to a symbolic parable of what it will involve. I won't give you my death now. I'll give you a sign of my death. I won't purify sins now, but I will fill up jars of purification with wine now. Points you to where we're going. Pointer number three. He tells the servants to fill purification jars. They They didn't choose this. He chose this. They weren't used for drinking. This must have caused them... Sure, they don't know what's going to happen once the jar is filled. His mother said, do what he says, we'll do what he says. And then they must have furrowed their brow when he said, "Uh, dip some water out of the bathtub and take it to the maitre d'. So he chose to put the wine in the vessel designed to make people pure. I don't think that's an accident on his part or on John's part to tell us. This is Jesus' second way of manifesting his glory by giving us a sign, an acted out parable of his own death and his own blood and and what it would mean. He would be the final, decisive, ultimate purifier for sins. Ritual cleansing is over. Read the book of Hebrews. All Jewish ritual cleansings are over because the final decisive wine blood has been shed and there is no more any ceremonial cleansing. We'll never in this church do anything remotely close to trying to do ceremonial ritual cleansings here. We have one sign, baptism, and we have one meal, the cup and the bread. We will obey Jesus on those two points. That's number two. And keep in mind this. Revelation chapter 7 verse 14 says, They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you want to get inside John's head, read the Revelation, read the Epistle, and read the Gospel. You make things white with the color 
wine. Number three, finally. The glory of an all-providing bridegroom. We have the glory of an obedient son. We have the glory of an ultimate purifier. And we have the glory of a, an all-providing bridegroom. Now, what, what are you seeing here? Jump ahead with me to the last words of John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 29. John three twenty-nine. One last time, John the Baptist extols the superiority of Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So his last praise to the superiority of Jesus is to say that he's the bridegroom and he has the bride, the church, the ever-growing assembly of disciples. They're all going to him now, not to me anymore, because he's the bridegroom and they're all streaming to him. And the first miracle that Jesus does is to take the role of the all-sufficient, all-providing, never-failing bridegroom. Let me show you. Let's read verses 9 and 10. What you're going to see now, watch for it, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, is that the groom, not the head steward or maitre d' or main servant, The groom is responsible for this wine running out and being supplied. And which wine he chooses to keep for last and keep for first. The groom is making these choices. Watch for that. When the master of the feast, not the groom, but the head waiter, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people, you know, are a little bit tipsy. And they can't tell whether it's good or not. Then then they serve the poor wine. Because nobody could tell. But you have kept the good wine until now. What's the point there? Well, one point is this. This bridegroom blew it. That's not true. You have kept the good wine until now. He didn't. He doesn't. He blew it. Jesus made the wine, not the groom. This man is just like every husband in this room. We fail. You were supposed to get at the store. (laughs) And in a hundred other ways more serious. We're just a bunch of failures. 
It's what we are. Sinner husbands, sinner grooms. We'll leave the women for another time. Just sinner, sinner grooms who let the wine run out. So that the real, the real groom has to step up and never fail. Never, never, never does Jesus let you down. Male or female, if you're in the bride, his wine, his always forgiving, always supplying wine never runs out. That's one of the glories being revealed in this passage. The rest of us men, they're not impressive. But Jesus, he's impressive. He can take water and meet the need for wine and do a hundred other miracles in your life if you would just count on him instead of running to Moab, trading your God for grain. Well, let me sum up. Those are the three. I'll close by just giving a little summary. As an obedient son of God, he is not swayed by family ties, not Mary's and not yours. I don't care what family you come from, you got no in with Jesus, nor any exclusion from Jesus on the basis of your family connections. It is irrelevant. He is swayed by one thing. When sinners, husbands, wives, children, old, young, despair of pedigrees and trust in grace. Would you join me in despairing? If you try to think that you are commended in any way to God or Christ, but by grace, you won't know him. He doesn't deal like that. His own mom had to learn it so painfully. Faith, not family. Grace, not pedigree. Lean on him and nothing else. Number two, as the ultimate purifier, he's not moved by religious ritual. Cleansing buckets or anything else you may try to do by way of ritual to get yourself ready to see him or to meet him or to make yourself a little cleaner, a little better, a little more acceptable. Got some rituals you do before you come to church, right? Put some uh, mints in your mouth so that nobody smells the smoke or the alcohol. Or what do we all these little rituals that we do to make ourselves just a little more acceptable to each other? It won't work. Just forget it. There is one way to be pure before God. It was the hardest way for Jesus, and it's the easiest way for you. Wash your robes in the blood of the Lamb. That's all. That is, come to Him. Live in Him. Finally, number three, as an all-providing bridegroom... 
He never, never fails to meet all our needs. My God will supply all your needs. Our all-providing bridegroom who loves the church and gave himself for her will never withhold anything from her that she needs. This life-giving wine of his death in our place never runs out. He is the perfect, all-providing husband for his church. So I close with Revelation 19.7. It goes like this. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And she, his bride, has made herself ready. Closing question. Have you made yourself ready? I know it's an odd way to say it, just a quote from Revelation. Have you made yourself ready for the bridegroom to come? Are you ready? That is, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It's the only way to make yourself ready is to realize you can't make yourself ready. And to let him make you ready. Just get under the fountain, right? Get under the fountain. That means come to Jesus. And remember last time, you don't move a muscle in coming to Jesus. It's all in here. I come. I now receive the fountain. I now accept the cleansing. I now turn away from my reliance on my pedigree. I want you. I need you. You're my only hope. You don't move a muscle when that happens. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you have the perfect purifier, the obedient son, the all-providing husband? Let's pray. Gracious Father, I love you and I love Christ. Because I need a purifier. I need to be reminded again and again and again that more than I need water to wash my body, I need blood to cleanse my sin. I turn away from Bill Piper and Ruth Piper, my mom and my dad and Elmer and Emma Piper. From Irma Moan and Winfield, I turn away from them. And any benefit I may have had from them, I do not count as ingratiating me with you. Grace alone, grace alone. And I, we receive your care as the great lover of the church who died for us so that whether we live or whether we die, we might be yours. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Amen.